when I was 16, been 16 for two weeks. I had, was working at an IGA grocery store in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And I called my dad to come get me. And my dad drove up in front of the grocery store and stepped out of the car. And I started to walk toward the car just like I did every night. And dad told me to wait a minute. And when he stepped behind the car, he was carrying a suitcase. And he walked over to where I was standing and he set the suitcase down beside me. And I was informed that that night my mother had decided I could no longer live in her life, in her house. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Richard Flint. Richard, are you ready to rock? I'm ready, Andrew. Let's rock. Let's do it. Well, Richard has been speaking and changing lives for over 30 years. His staying power comes from a strong following of corporate clients and associations that invite him back year after year. As one of America's top personal development speakers and coaches, he travels and speaks over 175 times per year. That's crazy. That's a huge amount. And personally, coaches, businesses, and individuals while on the road. Considered a well-guarded secret by many, Richard Flint inspires, teaches, and helps people and companies transform into their power to be so they can do or have anything they want. Interestingly, he does it without you having to set goals. So I'd love to hear more about that. Richard is on a mission, which he calls a crusade to help people have their best life possible. He knows how through his own experience. Richard, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. And boy, that bio piqued my interest. Andrew, it's been my crusade since I started this journey now about 32, 33 years ago is that every time that I am, am invested in a life, be it in an audience, be it in a podcast, whatever it is in my mentoring programs, I want three things for people. And this drives me. I want people to be better. I find it so easy for people just to settle. And they get trapped in their routine of sameness. And once they get trapped there, it's very challenging for them to be able to break free of that. So one of my gifts is helping people understand what it means to be better. Second thing is I want them to be smarter. I'm going to tell you something. God did not create any dumb people, but there are people who have mastered the art of playing dumb. <laughs> and I ask people all the time, have you ever thought about how smart you have to be to play dumb? Some of the smartest people you'll ever meet in your life are people who have mastered the art of playing dumb, and they use that to manipulate people around their life. And smarter is not being the most knowledgeable person but it's being able to use life's experiences because I think life is just a library of experiences. Mm. And the more we understand these experiences and the more we can use them to help us with where we are today, that frees us from yesterday's trap because it allows us to take the lessons and apply them. And then the third thing I want from people, I want to be stronger. And what I mean by that, Andrew, is that I want people to be able to strengthen their belief, their trust, and their faith in their self. When you have a strong foundation of belief, trust, and faith, what you do is you learn to control doubt, worry, and uncertainty. And those three, doubt, worry, and uncertainty, are what paralyze a lot of people. So that's my crusade that I live every day of my life. That's fantastic. Better, smarter, stronger. And the idea of eliminating or at least massively reducing doubt, worry, what was it? Worry and, worry and uncertainty. And uncertainty. And I mean, you know, when I think about the only times that I wake up in the middle of the night worried, you know, it's, it's worry, it's doubt, it's fear, it's uncertainty. It's not, I don't wake up in the middle of the night because I'm so happy about, you know, how that day went. And so I could imagine that if we can reduce those, those feelings in our lives, wow, it would add a lot, I could imagine. So that is a pretty impressive crusade. 
And how do people engage with you? What is the most common way that they're doing it? Is that through your speeches? Is that through what are the ways that people engage best with you or most commonly? Well, we also do, we do a free webinar every month that we invite people to come and just be part of our webinar. We average between five and 600 people a webinar on our webinar each month. And then we have our own podcast entitled Let's Talk Human Behavior. I've also written 19 books. I've done well over 200 CDs and MP3s. I do several conferences a year where we, and they're small groups, where we limit them to 15 people to come and spend time with me mm. on, in, a, in a very intimate setting. And then I have a summer conference that we limit to 200 people. And then with my seminars that I do all over the world, it's a fun life of being able to use the gift that you have. If God's given me one gift, it's the ability to take what looks confusing to people and show them the pathway to clarity. If you and I strengthen our belief, our trust, and our faith in ourself, we're not limited. Amen. I love it. Last question I want to ask. I mean, I don't normally ask all these questions about the bio, but this bio really piqued my interest because you said without having to set goals. And I'm telling you, Richard, the people listening to this podcast, including myself, are massive goal setters. And we think that we can achieve success and happiness and all of that through setting goals. Well, for me, Andrew, what most people write is not a goal. It's a hallucination. Because <laughs> most people write goals because they've been taught to write goals. And I work with so many people who write goals, and then once they write them, they're not sure what to do with them. So anything you write that you call a goal that you don't know how to implement into improvement, not into change. I don't want anybody that I work with to change because change is an emotion. And what causes the frustration with most goals, as we set a goal out to do what? To change us. And don't want your people to change. I want them to improve. So when I work with people, we don't look at goals. We look at four questions. And those four questions create the process for their life as they move forward. Question number one, what do you really want for your life? Not what do you want for your life. That word really is a critical word. And for me to know what I really want for my life, you know, I, I have to just be honest with myself. Many times, goals are a way of playing games with yourself. You know, I, I write a goal, but I don't believe in it. And so I set myself up to frustrate and limit myself. So I have to start with what do I really want for my life? And that's where my mind kicks in, my creative spirit. And then the second question is, why do I really want this? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? Had a conversation with a gentleman earlier today, Andrew, and we were talking about how lost he is in his life. And this guy has set goals for years. But his goals are based on a moment, not a journey. And when I really look at what I really want for my life, and why do I really want this? What's the purpose of me dedicating my life to this? And then third question is huge. What price am I willing to pay to have it? <laughs> I believe, Andrew, that everything in life has a price tag to it. What you do with your life has a price tag to it. And your commitment, your dedication, your determination, your discipline is all the result of the price tag that you're willing to pay. You see, when most people start a new journey, this is what I've learned in working with people. They don't start because they're committed. They start because they're curious. And curiosity is interesting. Because curiosity is based in a world of possibilities. And if you really study it, possibilities can be very negative. Because possibilities are based in the moment where I'm standing. And when I'm curious, I generally look at something, 
And then what do I do? I put a timetable to it. I'm going to be successful in X amount of time. And so when it doesn't happen, the possibility turns to a negative. And what has to happen is I've got to understand the price tag has got to be not to focus me on a possibility, but to focus me on the opportunity. Now, the difference between the possibility and the opportunity is my belief, my trust, my faith in myself. Mm. But you'll never find the possibility, I mean, the opportunity, if you don't slow down and look at the possibility. That's the starting point. One of the things about my career as an analyst and my life is that I'm constantly trying to explain things and you know, why is this happening and what's my conclusion? And one of the things about research is that the majority of the time that you spend doing research is a complete failure. The number of times I've followed a line of thinking, thinking that this, you know, this has, this, I could prove this in the financial world or something, it's a dead end. And you just don't know it's a dead end until you explore that and then eventually you come across what you know through your curiosity you know eventually you come across something that starts to make sense and then you start to piece it together and you know sometimes you're on a tight time frame like as an analyst i used to have to you know produce reports on a pretty consistent basis so you're squeezing that you know but then sometimes you realize that it takes a lot of time to explore to find, you know, what you're looking for. So it just made me think of that, but I don't know if it's pertinent or not. <laughs> yeah, it is because time is the greatest gift we have. And we waste a lot of time really trying to figure out if what I'm saying is what I really want. I meet a lot of people who live in their own fantasy world and they talk about all the great things they're going to do with their life, but then they don't invest the time. And Time is your greatest gift. Why? It has an expiration date to it. Why? Because it's here and then it's gone. And with all we want to do with our life, the big question is, okay, here's what I really want. This is why I really want it. Now, am I willing to pay the price to get to it? That's where most people break down. It's interesting, these, these questions that you're asking, it seems like you start to write the first question, what do I really want? And then you go to the next question and you say, why do I really want that? And all of a sudden you think, maybe I need to revise question number one. Or mm -hmm. maybe you get to question number three and you say, what price am I willing to pay? And you think, actually, I'm not really willing to pay that much for that particular, you know, it's interesting that it's an iterative process, I imagine. I'm curious to hear what step four is too. Let's stay with step three for just one second. For step three to have power, the price tag has to be grounded, Andrew, in three Ds. My desire, my determination, and my discipline. Those three set the standard for the price tag that we're willing to pay. I mean, what price am I willing to pay? Well, what's my desire? How determined am I? to really make this happen? And do I have the discipline? Can I hold my feet to the fire when things don't happen like I want them to happen? And then question number four to me is the most critical question. What behaviors will I have to change to get me there? My biggest selling book that I've ever written is entitled Behavior Never Lies. And it's based on the fact that the essence of truth is not what you say, it's what you do. How many people do you know who talk a good story, but then their behavior makes it impossible? What's the saying? Your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. And we are our behavior. The real definition of a human is not their words, it's their behavior. Now, if I bring all this to a point, Andrew, where I'm going to look at what is the biggest obstacle we have here in coming from a goal to a place of honesty, what holds this from being able to do that? It's a word you mentioned a little while ago. It's a word called fear. 
I think the biggest enemy that most people faced in their life and their success journey is fear. And I'm not sure your listeners have ever heard this before, but all emotions travel in threes. And you're not just dealing with fear. I mean, you think about this. All doubt comes from fear. Worry, uncertainty is giving fear control. But when you have belief, trust, and faith, you're controlling the fear. Now, I want your listeners to really hear this. From the day that Andrew was born to the day that Andrew dies, he's going to fight six fears. And the interesting thing about Andrew, Richard here has the same six fears. And they're not in any order because they vary from person to person. But one of the six is your number one fear. And if you can find, face, and control your number one fear, the other five diminish. But if you can't find and be honest about your number one fear, the other five will eat you alive. So in no order, random order, the six fears, the fear of the unknown. Now, in your world, you have, you've probably known people who the fear of unknown has had them step away from something that was a real opportunity. Yep. Because of the fact that the unknown will not allow us to have the clarity to see beyond that fear. And what other people, many people don't understand, the backside of once you step into the unknown, you get into the world of adventure. <laughs> and when you and I live in the world of adventure, our mind is guiding us. When we live in the fear of the unknown, our emotions are guiding us. The second of the six fears, the fear of abandonment. I might lose people. You and I and probably everybody listening at some point in our life had been in a place where we were fearful of making a decision because it might cost us someone out of our life. So what do I do? I stay where I don't belong. And when I stay where I don't belong, I am now paralyzed. And I used to work on the staff of a huge mega church. And I ran the counseling division for the church. And a lot of what I did, Andrew, I did marriage counseling. And I watched so many couples who stayed in a relationship that was wrong for the fear of not having anyone in their life. I watch people who stay in jobs, Andrew, where they don't fit, they don't belong. But they stay there because they're fearful they can't find another job. And I think the proof of that is just the fact that we know through surveys that, you know, most people are actually dissatisfied with their job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could but, you imagine that going to work every day and not being excited about what you're doing? I yeah. can't. I ask people all the time, have you ever had a day that was going great until you got out of bed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and, I were, yeah, you and I were put on this earth to be happy, to be fulfilled, and to be free. And if I live in that fear of not having, then I'm trapped. Unknown, abandonment is number two. What is number three? The fear of failure. And this is huge. And again, what we've done, we have messed so many people up mentally. And emotionally when it comes to fear, because we teach, you know, you're either going to be successful or you're going to be a failure. Again, if you can accept my concept that all emotions travel in threes, there's a third word we don't talk about. That word is defeat. And defeat is when you don't get back up. Andrew, I define failure with one word, fertilizer. <laughs> Tell me. is growth. So when I get knocked down, that is an opportunity to get up stronger. It's an opportunity to get up smarter. It's an opportunity to get up better. And so I can't see failure as something that's negative. It is a positive because it's simply a lesson that I haven't learned yet, or it's an opportunity that I wasn't prepared for, or it was a mistake and a judgment that I made. But none of those are there to defeat me. You can't grow if you can't fail. It's interesting because I always tell my longtime business partner, 
Sonsak, a Thai man here in Thailand, he and I have worked together for 20 years. And sometimes I propose something that like, he's like, that's, that's impossible. How can we do that? That's hard. And I always, we've learned over the years, do hard things because so few people will do them. You will stand out. And when you do hard things, you will fail and, you know, be ready for that. But then get back up. Obviously we don't want to be defeated. Yeah. If we fear failure, we fear taking a risk. Okay. Yep. And to see failure as a positive, that's why I have to come back to my foundation of belief, trust, and faith in myself. And that means I got to be willing to step out based on those three things. Fantastic. And then the next one is the fear of rejection. And we live in a world, Andrew, where so many people, they don't like their self, so they want to be liked. So they become what everybody wants them to be in order to be liked. And in reality, no one likes them. <laughs> They'd be better off just being themselves. Yeah. Well, my number one philosophy for my life is why spend my energy being a carbon copy when I'm the original? And my philosophy that goes on be, right along beside that one is never keep anyone in your life who's not part of your fan club. Anyone who's not part of your fan club is a critic. And critics are people who are trying to manipulate your belief, your trust, and your faith in yourself because they want you to doubt, they want you to worry, they want you to feel uncertain. And fans lift you up. Yep. Fantastic. And they're also very honest with you. All right. I mean, so I, number four is rejection. What is number five? Number five is the fear of loss. Back to the price tag. Yep. And then number six is the number one fear, Andrew, we're seeing in young people today. The fear of success. Mm, wait because a minute. That seems like an odd fear. Explain. Well, do you think parents can do too much for a child? Don't know. Yeah. In the world of counseling, I'm going to tell you they can. I had a dad bring his son to me one time. The, the little kid was 10 and a half years of age. And the kid's weekly allowance every Monday morning in his hand was $500 cash. <laughs> and Sounds like no he had a job. Yeah, no responsibility for it. And by Wednesday, he's broke. No drugs, no alcohol. What he did, he bought his friends. And I asked his dad, why are you doing this to your child? I don't want him to go through what I went through when I was growing up. I said, how can he learn if he's never given the freedom to fail? And so many young people today, they don't understand success. And they fear success because of what they've experienced through their childhood. I mean, so many of the millennials today, they don't want to get married. Why? What they saw their parents go through. They don't want to be committed to a job for long-term. Why? They've watched their parents become bored and angry and frustrated. And they fear that success because they have a very unhealthy definition of success. Success is involving yourself in your world where you can improve. And you and I either improve or we trap ourselves in the circle of sameness. Fantastic. So better, smarter, stronger and improve ourselves. I, it reminds me of a quote I, I used to attribute to my mother, but she told me, no, that, that didn't come from me, but I don't know where I heard it, but I, I just love it. And I've, I've said it all my life. Good, better, best. Never stop to rest until your good is better and your better is the best. And the idea yeah. of iterating through and life's just an experiment. You're testing things and, you know, hopefully you're creating a vision of where you want to go and you're testing things to get there. Listeners, this is the longest bio that we've ever had. The longest discussion. And I think that it's highly valuable what Richard has shared with us. And I can say that the six fears have come across in many of the different stories that we've heard on the podcast. But I also can say that through my life, I can see those six fears popping up in different ways at different times. And I can also see when I look at people around me, how, and you alluded to this, Richard, is the idea that our past is probably 
what gets us focused on one of those particular fears. Like I had a friend of mine who was particularly afraid of abandonment because they had been abandoned by their parents. The result of that was that she carried that abandonment, that fear of abandonment into every single relationship. And one day, amazingly, she became really aware of this fear of abandonment. And I swear, I've never seen a case where she went to see a psychiatrist who was very, very good. And they both honed in on this thing because my friend had become very aware of the pain that it was causing her and the irrationality of it at this point in her life. And I watched her leave. That fear left her. And she reshaped her life into an amazing life of much deeper relationships. And so, you know, think about it, listener. What is your number one fear? The fear of the unknown, the fear of abandonment, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of loss, or the fear of success. I believe, as we've just learned from Richard, that if you can understand, you can find, face, and control your number one fear, the other fears will probably melt away. Have I summed it up pretty well? Yeah. The fear will never go away. This is why people sometimes struggle. Mm. I, I need to lose this fear. No, you need to learn to control it. And Andrew, if there's one more thought that I can put in here, and it is probably the most challenged philosophy that I teach. You are exactly in your life where you want to be. And people tell me all the time, no, 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 no. This is not where I want to be with my life. Then why are you there? You are exactly in your life where you want to be. And the real sad part to this is most people put others in their life to give them permission to stay where they are. And if you want to improve, one of the things you got to look at is the circle of people around your life. Are they critics or are they fans? And I don't care who they are. If they're a critic, they got to go. They have to go. And sometimes this is a spouse. Sometimes it's a child. Sometimes it's a parent. It's people who say they're your friend, but they're not your friend. You have to surround yourself with people who keep you on that path to improvement. And to do that, you have to live in a world where you open yourself to honesty. I learned in the counseling center, most people want honesty as long as it's not honest. <laughs> yeah, and I think that when we talk about one last thing that I would add to this, and then let's get into the, the question of your worst investment, is that having fans does not mean them fawning over you. What that means is sincere, honest desire to see you better. And I'm assuming that that's what you mean when you say fans. I'm thinking of a friendship of mine, a guy that I know, and we, we didn't know each other that well, but he asked me for some advice. And, and I looked at his business and what he was doing, and we talked about it in detail. And I looked at him and I said, your whole business is a fraud. You're building it around a persona that's actually not you. And if you decide to continue to do that, you're going to be living in a world of fraud. Now, I'm not talking about fraud as in stealing, but I'm talking about fraud as in not representing your true self. So he actually had a, an avatar on his website that he kind of pretended he was that person when in fact he wasn't at all. And I was very clear and direct, you know, just said, this is what I see. And I felt like, you know, it took a little risk on my side to tell him that. He left. But about three months later, he came back to me and said, you know, I've completely reshaped my whole business. And that, that conversation that we had was pretty much the most valuable business conversation I've ever had. And now I've come out of the shadows and I now am no longer building this business around something or someone else. I'm building it around me, my passions, and my visions. And so... I think it's important that having a fan and a fan club means people that are willing to speak honestly to you. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you and I learn is that sometimes we're too trusting of people. 
And that trust is based on what we hear with our ears, not what we see with our eyes. And this is why my three little words have become so powerful all over the world. Behavior never lies. I will hear everything you say to me, but I'll study what you do. I'll study what you do. Yep. And trust is built on behavior. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing so much. I think at the end of the podcast, we'll also hear a little bit about what you're doing next and how people can access that. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Worst investment I ever was a part of was believing someone who told me three things about me because they wanted to control me. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story, Andrew, but I'll be brief with it. I was born in New Orleans. I never knew my real dad. If you could see my birth certificate where it says father, it's blank. My natural mother was a prostitute in New Orleans, and I was the result of a one-night stand. And she didn't want me. So when I was two weeks old, I was given into a family where I was only adopted because my dad wanted a son. My adopted dad wanted a son. My adopted mother didn't want me. And she proved that to me. Because from the age of six to the age of 16, my mother used to tell me three things every day. You're the stupidest kid I've ever met. You're never going to amount to anything in your life. And I am sorry we ever adopted you. And my greatest day will be the day when you're no longer in my house. And when I was, when I was 16, when I was 15, my adopted mother told me that I had to get a job and pay room and board to live in her house. And when I was 16, been 16 for two weeks, I was working at an IGA grocery store in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And I called my dad to come get me. And my dad drove up in front of the grocery store and stepped out of the car. And I started to walk toward the car just like I did every night. And dad told me to wait a minute. And when he stepped behind the car, he was carrying a suitcase. And he walked over to where I was standing and he set the suitcase down beside me. And I was informed that that night, my mother had decided I could no longer live in her life, in her house. And my dad looked at me, and my dad was a very great person in his own way. And he told me, he said, son, I don't understand this, but I don't know what to do. And he said, you must never forget, I love you very much. And I never doubted whether my dad loved me or not, but I knew my mother did not. Andrew? I have three sisters. None of them are real sisters. We're all adopted from different families. When I was growing up, I never got a birthday present. Sisters did. I never had a birthday cake. Sisters did. Come down on Christmas morning, my sisters would be opening presents, and there was nothing under the tree with my name on it. My mother made statements to me in every way possible, you're not welcome in my life. My dad didn't walk back to the car. He ran back to the car and looked over the top of the car and said, you take care of yourself. And he drove off. Loneliest feeling I've ever had in my life was standing on that street corner looking at a suitcase. You're 16 years of age, probably going on 12. And what do you do? I picked up the suitcase. I walked into downtown Ardmore, Oklahoma. I went into the hotel Ardmore and checked in and they looked at me funny, but I had cash to pay for the room. Went up to the seventh floor, put the key in the door, opened the door, and Andrew never turned the light on. Set the suitcase down, walked across the room, opened the window, looked down seven floors because there's no screens on the hotel Ardmore. And I crawled out and I sat on that ledge. And for three hours, I tried to make the decision, do you live or do you die? And Andrew, I understand people who commit suicide. The only time a human can take their own life is when they feel there's no value that they bring to, to life and to other people. And I figured out on that ledge, if I jumped, my mother would win. And I wasn't going to give that lady that victory in my life. Next morning, I called a gentleman who his two children were my best friends. Told Troy what had happened. He said, you wait, I'll be there. And for about two hours, we talked. 
And he asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not going back home. So he helped me find a room with a lady who was the editor of the daily newspaper there in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And I paid her $5 a week to live in her house. Every day I'd go to school, I'd go to football, tennis practice, I'd go to work, I'd come home at nine o'clock. And I'd sit at her table doing my homework until I couldn't keep my eyes open because I knew that when I went into that little dark bedroom, I was gonna cry myself to sleep. One of the loneliest feelings in the world is to feel that no one loves you. And we all know how important parental love is because children who grow up with love grow up healthy. Children who grow up without love and support from parents are always going to struggle in their life. When I was a sophomore in college, I made the decision I had to confront my mom and dad because I knew if I didn't, I'd never get beyond it. And I, for years, I've had this feeling inside me, anything I don't confront, I validate. And that's such a powerful lesson for people to learn. If I don't confront it, I validate it. It was 62 miles from my mom and dad, from my dormitory room to my mom and dad's front house, front door. I got to their house and I drove right past it. I was scared to death, Andrew. 16 miles past their house, I stopped, I turned around and told myself, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. Turned my car around, went back, parked across from their house, and my heart was about to jump out of my chest. And I shot across the road, got out, and ran to their front door, screen door, wooden door. And I knocked on the screen door, and when my dad opened the wooden door, Andrew, he just turned stark white. And I said, Dad, I need to talk to you and Mom. My dad didn't bother to unlock the screen door. He stepped through the screen door. And with one hug, just one hug, my dad told me everything that had, he had been tortured with. He literally picked me up, carried me into the living room, and the guy was just babbling. I, didn't, I don't remember anything he said, but I do remember he paused and called for my mother, who was in the kitchen, to come see who was there. And when my mother walked out of the kitchen to the living room, she took one look at me and just froze in her tracks, took her hand, reached around behind her, untied her apron, let it fall to the floor, took her other hand and reached over and picked up her purse, which always sat on that one table, took out her car keys, walked out the back door, got in her car and drove off. And I never saw her again. But Andrew, that was the lesson. It was all about her and her being able to control. When my mother died, I had to make a choice. Go to her funeral or go be with my dad after everybody left him. And I thought to go to her funeral would be hypocrisy. So I didn't go, and I went to be with my dad after everybody had left him. And for the last five years of his life, he was my very best friend, as long as I didn't try to talk about what happened when I was 16, because he couldn't handle it. And Andrew, I'll be honest with you. There are times that I've wanted to scream at my mother, look at me. You said that I'm stupid. Look at the degrees I have. You said I'm not going to mount anything. Look at me. I'm known all over the world. I've written 19 books. I have an impact on people. Look at me. I am lovable. And so my worst investment was accepting what my mother said as truth. Because parents don't lie. And then I realized she had an agenda. And her agenda was for her to be in control of everything. And I want to tell you something, man. If you got to know me, when people get to know me, I am probably the most self-confident person they'll ever meet in their life. I throw parties, and I'm the only one I invite. <laughs> God, they're great parties. I'm comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. So let's, let's now take this to the lessons that you've learned, thinking about you know, going back in that into time and what you've, you know, seen over the years, how would you describe, you know, a few of the key lessons that you learned from that whole story? Number one, not everyone who says they love you loves you. Hence what you've said before, the actions, yeah. yeah, behaviors, actions. Okay. Number two, the greatest strength you have is your belief, your trust, and your faith in yourself. Because that's what allows you to be the original and not a carbon copy. 
Number three, don't be fearful of today. If you live and hide in yesterday, you're fearful of today. And the interesting thing a lot of people don't understand, there is no fear in today. All fear is from yesterday. So if I bring the fear of yesterday to today, I don't have today. I have this time, the tick of the clock, but I don't have the freedom of today. I just have an extension of yesterday. Fantastic. My last lesson, and this one is big for me. Stay in tune with what God wants for your life. What I do with my life, Andrew, is my ministry. And all of us have a story. Every listener you have has a story. And that story we either use to justify or free us. We use that story either to blame others or to hold ourselves accountable. Fantastic. Well, now let me summarize a few of the things that I take away from your story. Listeners, you know, it's fantastic. First of all, you know, I really appreciate your ability to share the pain of that. One of the first things that comes to my mind, and I just wrote it down, is that let your past struggles shape what you share with the world. And if you go back to the beginning of this conversation, without knowing you before, for all the listeners, you heard the shaping, you know, what it is that Richard teaches about better, smarter, stronger, about facing your fears, about identifying your number one fear, finding it, facing it, and controlling it. And now, when you listen to this, you know, truly painful story of youth, what you can see is that Richard has taken that and used that to shape what he is sharing with the world. And that is the concept of authenticity. And that's when someone is truly authentic to their struggles, to their, to the things that shape them, you know, then I think we truly get tremendous value. The second thing for me is there was some parallels, you know, I had a loving mother and father, but there was a time where I was deep in drug abuse, alcohol abuse at a young age. And there was a time where I had been into a rehab and a few days after the rehab, I started using drugs again. All that my parents spent, you know, my college education, money, everything gone. And then four days later, I was heading on the road to ruin. And my mother, I think had more vision than my dad. My dad was probably more, he was, he had a hard time figuring out what to do. And my mother found another treatment center, this one in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And she basically, the two of them talked together and they bought me a one-way ticket. I was 16 years old. They bought me a one-way ticket to Baton Rouge, Louisiana from Akron, Ohio. And it was a ticket, not on a plane. It was a ticket on a bus. And my mom said goodbye to me in the front. I can still remember that moment in the front by the door where mom didn't have a lot to say except this is a one-way ticket. If you don't get it right, you can, you can live the rest of your life wherever you want. And my dad drove me to the bus station and it pained him. Now he knew my mom was making, the, the difference in this case is that he knew my mom was making a tough love decision, but it really pained my dad. And luckily for, for our family, I went to that treatment center and the day was September 15th, 1982, where I completely surrendered and realized that, you know, I, I, everything I was doing with my life was getting me to disaster. And that is my sobriety date of now 37 years. And I would also, you know, highlight that when I got through treatment and went through and got on the right track, I was 17 years old, getting close to 18. And when I got out of the, I ended up being in a long-term treatment center. I came out and my mom said, well, when you turn 18, you've got to move out. And I thought, 
wait a minute, I, I've improved myself. And my mom said, you know, we appreciate what you've done and you seem to be on the right track, but we don't want to be dragged through another relapse and all that comes with it. You're going to be 18. It's time for you to be on your own. And so where, where this story comes to what your dad arrived with that suitcase was that I found a, a room in a boarding house in Kent, Ohio, near Kent State, $125 a month. And basically my dad, I packed up what I had and my dad drove me to that room. And, you know, I know my dad at the time felt like, you know, hey, I just got my son back. I want to spend time with him. But he knew that my mom's vision of what, what I could achieve in my life also. She knew how to push me to the limits of what I could achieve. And I arrived, my dad dropped me off. I took that box. I went in that room, fell to my knees and just sobbed. And it was a sob of, there was fear, there was surrender, there was so many different things. But it was really that point where I started to shape my life. And that was my kind of sitting on that ledge point to say to myself, am I going to make this, you know, something good? And look at us now, Richard, look at us now. So I think that if I think about it, what I take away is the idea that for the audience, I want you to think about what is the most painful thing in your life? The most thing that you fear the most in your life. Chances are you have no way of escaping this thing. It is either going to negatively infect you, affect you for the rest of your life. It's going to positively affect you for the rest of your life. And your determination of which way it will go will be based upon your ability to find it, face it, and control it. And once you face it, as we heard from Richard, when he faced his mom, it disappeared. And many, many fears disappear when you face them directly. So that's my takeaway. Is there anything that you'd add to that? Well, Andrew, a couple of things. I think you can boil life down to one question. Everybody tries to make life so complex. But life can be boiled down to one question. Before you make any decision in your life, no matter what it is, take a deep breath. Why? Because it slows you down emotionally. And ask yourself this, will this decision feed my confusion or strengthen my clarity? And anything in life can be put to that question. Will this decision feed my confusion or strengthen my clarity? And that is the one question of life. And Andrew, we're, we're doing some things that we've never done before. We've started a series of small group retreats that are limited to 15 people. And our next one coming up is January 9 through 12. And it's a couples retreat. And my theme is tweaking your relationship. It's not about counseling couples, but everything has got to be in the process of improvement. And anything to improve has to be tweaked. That's not saying you change it. You tweak it. Tweaking is improvement. And we're going to be at the PGA Resort and Spa in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, January 9 through 12. It's on my website, richardflint.com. And then we've got another one coming up at the end of April 1st of May on decluttering your clutter. Clutter is the number one behavioral challenge in people's life. Show me anyone who's disorganized, anyone who struggles with time, anyone who lacks discipline. It all comes back to the clutter in their life. Clutter is anything you start that you don't complete. People are held hostage by clutter. And then next summer, we're doing for the 30th year, we're doing our summer Star Maker Conference, July 17 through 19, again at the PJ Resort and Spa. And my theme is Because I Can. And I, I think we're the only one that limits ourselves. And I can. I can do it. And I'd like to offer your listeners a gift. On my website, richardflint.com, I do a thing called the, the Morning Minute. And every morning, I send you a 60-second video email of one of my philosophies of life and a piece of wisdom to go with it. If you go to my website and you look on it, 
there's a place there, and I'd like to offer you the morning minute for the next 21 days free. It's a $99 investment for the year, but I'd like to give it to you for the next 21 days free. Let me have this time in your life. Start your morning with me. Just 60 seconds, one minute, and watch the impact it can have on your life. That's a fantastic offer. Listeners, you need to rush to that now because I'll be going straight to it. And the thing that I think you really capture from Richard and this whole discussion is the authenticity of where he comes from and what he's, the change that he can bring to our lives. So last question that I have for you personally, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Okay. My number one desire for the next 12 months, not my goal, but my <laughs> desire, is to finish the two books I'm working on right now. My next book is going to be entitled, So What's Your Excuse? And then the book that my staff tells me I cannot publish under this title, but I am committed to do it. It's 30 plus years of hotel, airplane, travel stories. And the title of the book is I'm Sorry I Didn't Mean to Pee on You. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just have to wait to hear that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I appreciate, I appreciate this time with you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate too. It's been fantastic. And I, I think I'm going to wrap it up by telling listeners that you've got another story of loss to keep you winning. And the other thing I would say is, you know, as we end, Richard, I want to thank you for coming on the show sincerely. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And of course, as you know, I want to congratulate you for having the bravery, like our other guests, to share your worst investment and your worst experience. And you've now and previously converted that now into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for our audience? Strengthen your belief, your trust, and your faith in yourself, and you will overcome the limits that you self-impose on yourself. Fantastic. Look, Andrew, you and I are living illustrations of what happens when we believe we trust and have faith in ourselves. We are today where we are because of that. That's a lesson. Beautiful. I think we're going to leave it at that. Ladies and gentlemen, go to the show notes. I'll have links to all the things that we've talked about to Richard's website, richardflint.com. And let's keep this conversation going. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth and our life. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.